Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again is Phoebe Watson. Hello! It's wonderful to be back on the podcast. Uh, as if you've listened to our last episode, you know that there's been a little bit of a break in recording for us because of a uh, problem with my laptop that needed to get fixed. So we feel a little bit rusty. We're kind of in the midst of the flurry before Christmas, although we do have most of our chaos out of the way. Pretty much, I think. Uh, um, and so maybe actually at this point, it's uh, the opportune time to wish all of our listeners a very happy Christmas. And Happy Advent, if it's still Advent for you. But. Yeah, I expect this will go up right around Christmas. Right. But uh, yes, and you know, blessings for the new year. And just a thank you for sticking with us, for listening to us this year. Thank you for joining us for whether it was one episode or every episode. We're just so grateful. And uh, yeah, definitely looking forward to the new year. I am once again hopeful that I will have no scheduling problems for the next <laughs> season. Uh, we we will see what because that works so well. <laughs> we will see what God brings along the way. But I am really just so honoured, and it's such a blessing to get to do this podcast. So I just want to thank everyone for listening. And to move to our topic for this episode, in some ways we're maybe a little late posting it because this is a really great Advent book, but I would say what? it's a it's a great book for all the time of the year. And I would say, as we mentioned, Advent, unfortunately, is often not the season of quiet reflection that we're going to be talking about. And I think this Advent in particular, because it was the shortest Advent possible. Right. And so maybe you will get some time after Christmas to quietly reflect once all of the hustle and bustle is done. And in that case, I would strongly recommend you read the book that we're going to be discussing for this episode, which is The Read of God by Carol Houselander. And it is excellent and beautiful. Yes, I mentioned Carol Houselander in my in, if you listen to the sort of bonus episode we did, which was the recording of my women's talk for you 2000 this summer. Uh, and I referenced her being uh, someone who I was very fond of. That is absolutely the case. However, I have to admit, I read quite a few extracts of her writing up until that point, but this is the first full book that I've read. And I knew it was one of those ones where everyone says you have to read it. And you're like, I know I'm going to love it. I know it's going to be amazing. I just need to get to it. And and then as soon as you read it, you go, why didn't I read this, you know, two, three, four years ago? Why didn't I get to this sooner? Right, right. <laughs> uh, it's a quite a short book. It's um, our version is like 130-ish pages, uh, so it's very kind of manageable. However, I will also say that the one negative is that it's a terrible book to read quickly, which both of us kind of had to do. Phoebe in particular got landed with it a couple of days ago and said, you have to read this before we record the episode. <laughs> uh, and I feel kind of guilty because it really is not a book to be read quickly. It is 100% a book that you need to read and then pause and read and pause because uh, it is so profound and wonderful. Yeah, it's the kind of book that you want to read a chapter mm. or like half a chapter mm -hmm. and then go away for a little bit of time and then come back to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so maybe before we dive into it, though, we should give a little bit of context as to who Carol Houselander is. Uh, like I said, I, I mentioned her in, in my talk, if you listen to that, but just to give a little bit more context, she was an English mystic, a Catholic mystic who lived in the early part of the 20th century. And she, uh, early in life, she had several very profound visions and, uh, and I find that really interesting because it was in between these visions that she also went away from her faith. She was trying to, she, she we're going to be talking a lot about seeking and she was definitely seeking the truth. Um, uh, but I always think it's interesting how, I think I've referenced this before on the podcast, but we all tend to feel that like, if only we had seen Jesus or if only we could see an apparition or something like that, that we would be set in our faith for life. And there's a, a lyric from an Imogen Heap song 
called Waited Out, where she says, all I want is only one street level miracle. I'll be an out and out born again from none more cynical, <laughs> uh, which is a great line. But I, it's also clearly not true that like you can see much more than a street level miracle and still be like, I'm not sure what <laughs> what's going on here. I'm going to explore other other faiths and traditions. But- yeah. So I read her autobiography recently, mm-hmm. which delves into some of that. Mm-hmm. And it just takes her through a really interesting journey up to her early 20s. And her like first mystical experience comes when she's really ill with a neurosis and like in bed for three months as like mm-hmm. an 11, 12 year old. And she gets this miraculous experience of the Blessed Sacrament. Mm-hmm. And then later as a teenager, she gets a couple of visions of people that relate to Christ in people, mm. which is something she really talks about in this book. Yeah. Um, but then she's drifting away from her faith and then even seeking Christ in other churches and seeking that spiritual life in other places and desperately trying to avoid the Catholic church that she's grown up in before this third grand vision where she sees Christ in the faces of many people. Mm. And that's what finally brings her back into the church. Yeah. And it brings her into a place of accepting the sinners in the church that had mm. kind of driven her away. Right. And I think that's really key because that that's what she goes on to be as someone who really ministers to all kinds of people and sinners. And uh, she has a particular ministry. You, you mentioned her having kind of neuroses. So she has this particular connection to people who struggled with psychological mm. problems and yeah, having that special kind of relationship with them. She was an amazing kind of spiritual director, but she was also just someone who was very interesting and fun and led a very like dynamic life again as like an unmarried woman and had that kind of freedom to be out in the world and she like she hated this idea of like common sense christians and she wanted people to be more vibrant and and dynamic in the way that they lived and even to the point of being kind of eccentric and i think that one of my favorite quotes of hers is she says something like like it is our duty as christians to make silly faces on the bus so that people have something to laugh at and talk about <laughs> you know that like that idea that respectability is by far and away not something that is actually something we need to be aiming for. It's not something you need to totally avoid, but it's not that, like, the goal of our lives is a kind of respectability and normalcy. Yeah, in um, The Rocking Horse Catholic, she really contrasts the French convent that she went to for a time Mm -hmm. and their, like, embracing of singularities and, like, different strong personalities Mm -hmm. with, like the respectable English convent and they're like trying to erase anything that is singular or eccentric. I love that. That's great. And so The Read of God, I think, is her most famous book. Uh, And it is, I think it helps that it's so seasonal because people essentially get a yearly reminder to read it. Uh, And what it it is about is it's about Our Lady and especially Our Lady in the kind of run up to the birth of Christ and the season of Advent. And I think our second ever episode of the podcast was called Waiting in the Dark in Advent. And our first real episode. Right. Which I did not go back and listen to. (laughs) There's only so much I can take of my own voice. And my own voice from four years ago is is a whole extra (laughs) level. But um, it's... uh, it's kind of in that theme which is that she really explores wonderfully and in such an innovative way the idea of emptiness and also even virginity that uh, these things that we can see as a negation and as an absence are actually things that ought to be powerful forces in and of themselves that they're not a negative they're a positive that they have a purpose that they lead us to our purpose that they are not so much a denial but actually a utility of our being yeah and that those emptinesses are made to be filled with christ Mm, yes yeah we're going to talk more about the the kind of concept of emptiness but i i do want to read out that just that quote about virginity because i think it actually really puts that discussion in context of like changing 
our perception of what what we're, we're conceiving of when we talk about this. So she says, this is in the introduction to the book. Uh, in many minds, virginity is associated only with negative qualities, with impotence, impotence of body and mind, emotional and spiritual impotence. Unfortunately, there are not only wise virgins in this world, but unwise ones, foolish virgins. And the foolish virgins make more noise in the world than the wise giving the false impression of virginity by their loveless and joyless attitude to life. They cause us to turn with a sigh of relief to the page in the Missal which announces the splendid feast of a holy woman who is neither a virgin nor a martyr. <laughs> These foolish virgins, like their prototypes, have no oil in their lamps, and no one can give them this oil, for it is the potency of life, the will and capacity to love. We no longer think of virginity as the first fruits laid upon the fire of sacrifice, but rather as a windfall of green apples, which are hard and sour because the sun has never penetrated them and warmed them at the core. She's so good. She's amazing. So I just love how she takes that, that kind of negative image that we can have and totally turns it around. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's what she does so powerfully with the concept of, which is related to virginity in this way, uh, to, to emptiness. Yeah, and her quote about that emptiness is so good as well. She says that virginal quality, which for want of a better word, I call emptiness, is the beginning of this contemplation. It is not a formless emptiness, a void without meaning. On the contrary, it has a shape, a form given to it by the purpose for which it is intended. It is emptiness like the hollow in the reed, the narrow restless emptiness which can have only one destiny, to receive the piper's breath and to utter the song that is in his heart. It is emptiness like the hollow in the cup, shaped to receive water or wine. It is emptiness like that of the bird's nest, built in a round, warm ring to receive the little bird. The pre-advent emptiness of Our Lady's purposeful virginity was indeed like those three things. She was the reed through which the internal love was to be piped as a shepherd's song. She was the flower-like chalice into which the purest water of humanity was to be poured, mingled with wine, changed to the crimson blood of love, and lifted up in sacrifice. She was the warm nest rounded into the shape of humanity to receive the divine little bird. Emptiness is a very common complaint in our day, not the purposeful emptiness of the virginal heart and mind, but a void, meaningless, unhappy condition. I think that's so powerful. And obviously that's where the name of the book comes from, the reed of God, that the, the idea of the, the instrumental reed uh, through which the music is played. And... It, it just is so much of a transformation of what we think of emptiness. Like instead of this lack of something being in there, there's like that quiet expectancy and that that promise of fulfillment. Yeah, that the emptiness is part of the shape of the whole. Mm -hmm. And what I love about what she says in that context is that she's also really good about highlighting how that there's a distinctiveness to everyone's experience of this emptiness and mm. that it's not all the same. I was struck, I was thinking a lot about how it related to that quote of St. Augustine of our hearts are restless until they rest in you. But that like, it's not a uniform resting, that like there's a different yearning in each person and in the same way that there's a kind of specific um, expectation for each fulfillment of that emptiness. And I was thinking how it's funny with the Barbie movie that came out, there was a song that they released as kind of the the summation of the themes of that movie, which was by Billie Eilish, which is called What Was I Made For? And that's, uh, you know, it's very, it's it's quite a clever tie into the idea of like a, a, a toy realizing it wants to be a human. But there is also something truly universal about like that question of what was I made for? And that God is calling us to a specific destiny. Isn't that one of um, uh, St. John Henry Newman's prayers of like that I, I, I've been called to some particular purpose? Yeah, that there's a purpose that we are called to that 
will not be fulfilled mm-hmm. in God's plan unless we fulfill it. Exactly. And so isn't that something really, truly beautiful to contemplate in Advent, which is what is the purpose for which I'm being called to do? What, How am I to bear Christ into the world? And not just in a generic way, but in a specific way. And the book really talks a lot about, which we can go into a little bit later, about uh, how that will often look quite mundane, that it's not necessarily about imagining yourself on a big epic quest or something like that, but that Our Lady was called to a very small and humble life. And so we shouldn't ever disdain that being our calling, Mm. but it will still be specific to us. We live in a specific time. We are specific people. We have specific destinies and purposes that God has in mind for us. Yeah, and even like taking those three illustrations of the Mm. reed, the chalice and the nest, Mm -hmm. first of all, there's three of them. Mm-hmm. not one yeah and then that each one of those will look different for each one of us yeah. and there may also be others yeah exactly and she says it is the purpose for which something is made that decides the material which is used the chalice is made of pure gold because it must contain the blood of christ the bird's nest is made of scraps of soft down leaves and feathers and twigs because it must be a strong warm home for young birds When human creatures make things, their instinct is to use not only the material that is most suitable from the point of view of utility, but also the material that is most fitting to express the conception of the object they have in mind. And further than that, she even kind of goes on to say how the hardships that we experience will be specific to the purpose that we are being called to. And I think that's also really interesting. We're going to talk a little bit about how Christmas can be a difficult and even melancholy time of year for people and how it can also, especially in the age of social media, be such a time for uh, jealousy and envy and looking Mm. at other people's lives and saying like mine doesn't match up and I don't have this and I didn't get these presents or I'm not with this family or I'm missing this person in my life. Wondering why we're empty. Right, exactly. And so I think it was really moving to me when I got to that section where she talks about how she says, the reed grows by the streams. It is the simplest of things, but it must be cut by the sharp knife, hollowed out, and the stops must be cut in it. It must be shaped and pierced before it can utter the shepherd's song. It is the narrowest emptiness in the world, but the little reed utters infinite music. The chalice does not grow like the flower it resembles. It is made of gold. Gold must be gathered from the water and the mud and hewn from the rock. It must be beaten by countless little blows and give the chalice of sacrifice its fitting beauty. The twigs and fluff and leaves of the bird's nest are brought from all sorts of places, from wherever the brave, careful mother alights with fluttering but daring heart to fetch them, from the distances and explorations that only the spread of wings of love know. It is the shape of her breast that moulds the nest to its inviting roundness. Thus it is with us. We may be formed by the knife, pared down, cut to the least, to the minimum of our own being. We may be marked indelibly by a succession of strokes, blows from the gold beater's hammer, or we may be shaped for our destiny by the love and tender devotion of a devoted family. So beautiful. I know. It it was so appalling when I got to the end of the book and I had all the sticky notes of like the quotes (laughs) that I wanted to pull out and I knew I was going to have to type them up and I was like, I'm just typing out the book. Like, I feel like that's just illegal. But it's just so wonderful to to really sit in that contemplation through Mary of what it means to to create a space for God. And like because and she does this so beautifully in the book where she talks about, you know, the womb of Our Lady being a space that is is ready and waiting and then expands and holds our Lord close to her and it's it's such a it's so easy to take it for granted in terms of like oh yes our lady was pregnant with our lord and gave birth but the idea of actually having a space that bears christ within us yeah i also love how especially with that illustration of the nest it's pulling stuff from Mm -hmm. all over Mm -hmm. like it's pulling all the different parts of our lives and Mm -hmm. wrapping them around christ Mm -hmm. which i think for me helps in that illustration of sometimes you hear 
obviously when you hear the idea of having to get rid of everything to follow Christ Mm -hmm. and rather it's to wrap our lives around Christ yeah and she does talk at some point about having needing to empty the nest if it gets filled with things that shouldn't be there yeah that we do have to actually create that empty void as well but there is also a sense in pulling the various parts of our lives in Mm. um, and that they encompass who we're meant to be before God yeah absolutely yeah it's just uh, an incredible image and it's interesting we were reflecting on this with like because she talks a little bit about people who then fill their lives and become very busy and uh, are afraid of the kind of the stillness and the space and you know and is Christmas not the like the almost the worst time to c- cultivate it but how necessary it is so there I think that we have a quote from um an article I think it's by uh, on a website called Catholic Insight which referenced Jane Austen in this and so I was like well of course that has to go in we have to reference Jane Austen (laughs) at some point yeah Phoebe do you want to take that um Fanny Price the heroine in Jane Austen's Mansfield Park makes a striking comment one evening when waiting for a carriage she says the time between dinner and the carriage passed in a quick succession of busy nothings even though Fanny was only remarking on the passing of a few short hours I think the line illustrates perfectly how easily life can become dull and boring We wake up, go to work, eat, watch TV, surf the net and go back to sleep, only to do the same thing the very next day. We become bored and complacent and stuck in ruts. Then we have a midlife crisis and buy bigger houses or sports cars just to feel alive because we're terrified that life really is nothing more than an endless succession of busy nothings. The ordinariness of your day will be transformed. No longer will the daily drudge be drudge. The contemplation of humanity, inextricably entwined with divinity, will transform every dish and every diaper into purposeful mission. It's so great. And I think what's key about that is that, obviously, as you know, she's talking about making space. And it's absolutely true that we all need to find the space for prayer and contemplation and silent prayer and all of those things. But she's actually not saying that uh, we need to all retreat into a monastery. And like for someone who spent quite a lot of time in, in convents and things like that, but that that there is a beautiful space to be found for bearing God into the world in carrying out the small things of our life. And that when we do that, we're actually following Our Lady. Yeah, that she really delves into the idea that Our Lady didn't go away and hide and lead a special... She says she was not asked to lead a special kind of life, to return to the temple and live as a nun, to cultivate suitable virtues or claim special privileges. She was simply to remain in the world, to go forward with her marriage to Joseph, to live the life of an artisan's wife, just what she had planned to do when she had no idea that anything out of the ordinary would ever happen to her. It almost seemed as if God's becoming man and being born of a woman were ordinary. It's so great, yeah. yeah. And I love that. And she says towards the end of the book as well that even even after uh, our Lord ascends into heaven, again, you think, like, okay, Our Lady has done everything she needs to do. Surely she can just retreat and become a little hermit and contemplate her, her son. And no, no, she gets given a new son and presumably has to go live with them and do the dishes and, you know, serve them and be served by them and be part of their lives and move around where they move. And yeah, that... uh, Yeah, it talks about her going back to baking the special kinds of cakes that boys like. Yeah. And that kind of beautiful hominess of the domestic scene. Yeah. That domestic service. I love it so much, which is not, and obviously in no way is she denigrating people who do go into the monastic and contemplative traditions. But she says, we shall not be asked to do more than the mother of God. We shall not be asked to become extraordinary or set apart or make a hard and fast rule of life or compile a manual of mortifications or heroic resolutions. We shall not be asked to cultivate our souls like rare hothouse flowers. We shall not, most of us, even be allowed to do that. (laughs) What we shall be asked is to give our flesh and blood, our daily life, our thoughts, our service to one another, our affections, our loves, our words, our intellect, our waking, working and sleeping, 
our ordinary human joys and sorrows to God. <laughs> I mean, you know, every time I read a quote, I feel like we want to pause and let just leaves a load of dead space in a podcast. I know, it feels like you want to just go back and read it again. <laughs> yeah, I think that's particularly, like in Advent, you get so caught up in the rush mm-hmm. of doing all the little things for everyone. Mm-hmm. And you can feel like that means your Advent has failed. Yeah. And I think there's such an extraordinary comfort in this, mm-hmm. that that flesh and blood act of serving others in your Advent mm-hmm. is part of our calling to bear Christ to the world. Absolutely. And it, it, it's, it's funny because we were preparing this episode of the podcast while also preparing for our annual Christmas party that we throw at our flat. And uh, we were so really blessed this year that so many of our friends were able to come. It was kind of bigger than we've ever had before. And it was a joy and such a blessing. But it can often feel, because obviously I enjoyed that party very much. And so it feels sort of self-indulgent. And and I'm very aware that it took place in Advent and not Christmas, but nobody's around during Christmas. So it had to be during Advent. Uh, But that, uh, you know, it feels like maybe a frivolous thing or maybe... uh, uh, a self-indulgent thing and I'm not <laughs> I wouldn't claim to to be free of either of those things but that you can also take the time to take the perspective of we also emptied out the space in our flat we literally moved furniture around so yeah we were planning on this this podcast sitting on sofas that had been moved to create space for the party yeah, yeah. exactly and you know made time in our schedules both both of us had the day off work and we had planned to have a day off work so that we could actually prepare for this party and make sure everything was ready that like you can also see the ways in which you make space in your life and in your home and in the ways that even, I was thinking this with buying Christmas presents, I was thinking of that quote in uh, A Christmas Carol when Scrooge's nephew Fred is talking about Christmas and he says, but I am sure that I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come around, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be set apart from it, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they were really fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys and therefore uncle though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket i believe it has done me good and will do me good and i say god bless it and of course, last year we had our episode on uh, extravagance and humility in Christmas and we talked about the need to not put terrible financial strains on ourselves and, and to, to be prudent in that way and find ways to celebrate the season within the bounds of, of, of what we have. But in terms of like, you know, buying Christmas presents is by its very nature an extravagance. You are, you know, less well off in the process of doing so. Depends on what you receive back. But that, you you know, especially if you're giving with the sense of not giving with the expectation of receiving. If you're giving the way you're supposed to be giving. Right. That it makes you poorer. It makes you, you know, all of these things that like you can actually see Christmas as a time of emptying out as much as receiving yeah and especially what you said about that carving time out of your schedule Mm. for 101 things Mm -hmm. and that that's that that isn't emptying that it can feel really busy Mm -hmm. but it is part and parcel with this like welcoming of the christ child absolutely and that like obviously it should be in tandem with things like the things that we more associate with emptiness like silence and contemplation and and those things but to at the very least bear our christian perspective into those spaces as well and see it as an opportunity to bear christ into the world and be uh, to host friends and love them and serve them and give them a happy memory and a good experience and all of these things that what carol Hauslander is saying is that these are all right and proper parts of bearing Christ into the world because it looks like your home it looks like your to-do list it looks like your family yeah it looks like the mundane Mm -hmm. but the mundane is where we're called to serve yeah it's so beautiful yeah and 
Carol Hauslander has a really interesting quote about this in her Advent section that says, this Advent awareness of the emptiness does not lead to a selfish preoccupation with self. It does not exclude outgoing love to others. Far from it. It leads to them inevitably, but it prevents such acts and words of love from becoming distractions. It makes the very doing of them reminders of the presence of Christ in us. It is through doing them that we can preserve the secrecy of Advent without failing to offer the loveliness of Christ in us to others. And she also just has this really beautiful conception of the secrecy of Advent. Mm. Um, that is the secrecy of a child growing in its mother's womb. That it's so intrinsically linked to Christmas as well. Mm. Like even Santa coming down the chimney at Christmas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that there's such a sense of secrecy be as a good thing yeah and like you're trying to get presents for each other secretly and keep the surprise mm. um that i think that's just such a beautiful link to the secrecy of christ within us and it's a way of almost like hiding the christ life within us to treasure it not that you're not bearing it out to the world as well but the idea that you don't necessarily need to talk about it she says It is not necessary at this stage of our contemplation to speak to others of the mystery of life growing in us. It is only necessary to give ourselves to that life, all that we are, to pray without ceasing, not by a continual effort to concentrate our minds, but by a growing awareness that Christ is being formed in our lives from what we are. We must trust him for this, because it is not a time to seek his face. We must possess him secretly, and in the darkness, as the earth possesses the seed. We must not try to force Christ's growth in us. With a deep gratitude for the light burning secretly in our darkness, we must fold our concentrated love upon him, like earth, surrounding, holding, and nourishing the seed. Mm. Uh, Yeah, I love that idea that you're not supposed to go and like uproot Christ every five minutes to see how he's getting on. Mm. Um, That we're actually called to be patient in that. Yep. and wait for the fruits to come. Yeah, And she also really extrapolates that idea of Advent not just as something that comes every December, mm. but that it comes at different points in our lives and could be months or years of Advent and could come back. Mm-hmm. And that there would, can be times of darkness in our lives where we're waiting for Christ to grow. Yeah, And that we're called in that space to treasure it but not to like be anxious and impatient about it. And to abide with God and not always be so focused on the outward appearance mm, of, of things. Yeah. And again, like I said, this is the reason I, I pulled on her so much for my, my talk on womanhood was that, I, yeah, it was something that I felt really strongly about in terms of the a preoccupation that can happen very easily with being more preoccupied with the appearance of virtue than actual virtue. Mm. And she says wonderfully that uh, the whole thing, in this case, the the birth of Christ, the whole thing was to happen secretly. There was to be no announcement. The psalmist had hymned Christ's coming on harps of gold. The prophets had foretold it with burning tongues. But now the loudest telling of his presence on earth was to be the heartbeat within the heartbeat of a child. It was to be a secret and God was so jealous of his secret that he guarded it at the cost of his little bride's seeming dishonour. He allowed Joseph to misjudge her, at least for a time. Ooh. And I think that's so beautiful because it comes back to what I was saying about the jealousy or the sense of lack that we can have when we look around at Christmas and how we can feel like it looks like we failed or we don't feel like it measures up or our our decorations aren't beautiful enough or our family is not cohesive enough or whatever it is that... The typical family fight on Christmas Day. Right, exactly. (laughs) That, you know, it can... It can be a grief in its own way to put that level of pressure on ourselves. And it's very hard not to because it is a joyous occasion and you want it to go great. And so whenever you want something to go great, there's like the fear of it not going great. So I'm not, you know, I think on some level it's a little bit natural. But at the same time, to abide in that sense that it can also be a time of grief. And she talks about this even in the book that like, surely it was even a sense of grief to give 
up our Lord from being within her to being without mm. her. And that, you know, as much as he was still a dependent babe and she could now see him and kind of interact with him, that it was a parting as well, that it was a sense of separation that heralded the, the coming of Christ to everyone else. And it's so interesting the way that she talks about this kind of duality, which is the joy of, of Our Lady's experience with Christ, but also the continual kind of hardships as well with it. Yeah, the idea that her offering of Christ on Calvary begins with her placing Christ in the manger. Yeah. It's, such, it's so beautiful. It's so powerful. I thought one of the really kind of like striking bits in the in the book is when she talks about Our Lady giving him death. Yeah. She says, in giving him life, she was giving him death. All other children born must inevitably die. Death belongs to the fallen nature. The mother's gift to the child is life. But Christ is life. Death did not belong to him. In fact, unless Mary would give him death, he could not die. Unless she would give him the capacity for suffering, he could not suffer. He could only feel cold and hunger and thirst if she gave him her vulnerability to cold and hunger and thirst. He could not know the indifference of friends or the treachery or the bitterness of being betrayed unless she gave him a human mind and a human heart. That is what is meant to Mary to give human nature to God. He was invulnerable and he asked her for a body to be wounded. He was joy itself and he asked her to give him tears. He was God and he asked to make him man. He asked for hands and feet to be nailed. He asked for flesh to be scourged. He asked for blood to be shed. He asked for a heart to be broken. The stable at Bethlehem was the first Calvary. The wooden manger, the first cross. The swaddling bands were to be the first burial bands. The passion had begun. Christ was man. So beautiful. And it just is such a a powerful way to step into that season and she later also says the first great finding was in the temple the second great finding was on calvary did you not know that i must be about my father's business father i have finished the work you gave me to do mary found her lost child on calvary Mm. and i think it reminded me of a lot of other really beautiful pieces that i have really cherished in in the christmas season um, because I think for me, I, 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 I love Christmas. I've been having a great time, but I, I have also come to know that I, I find it a slightly melancholy time as well. And to just prepare for that and know that this is, this is part of the jumble of the Christmas experience. Yeah. And there's also a time when there can be a lot of sorrow mm-hmm. and that the sorrow that we've experienced throughout the year can come back to us with like missing family members. Yeah. And also often you have people who die around Christmas. Mm-hmm. Like it was my grandfather's um, death anniversary a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Like those kind of things coming back and reminding us of those that we've lost. Cause we feel like Christmas should be a really happy time, mm-hmm. but there's always sorrow and grief within that. Yeah. Um, like my parents' church back home does this really beautiful uh, blue Christmas service, which is a deliberate, quieter service for those who are not currently in a place where they can celebrate with great joy. I think that's and just so beautiful. And ministers such... to that need. What, what a giving thing to yeah. do. Yeah, I really love it. And... I, I have this like little bugbear where I really love the, the film Meet Me in St. Louis, which famously has the song Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas in it, which I love. But um, the, a lot of the versions of the song that you hear out and about are this sort of like slightly happier version. Now, I in preparing for this episode, I actually looked it up. The very, very original lyrics were even more morbid than the <laughs> one that's in the film. So I don't, I don't quite know what to make of them. But the ones that kind of get popularized now, they replace a couple of the lyrics. There's one which is, until then we'll have to muddle through somehow to hang a shining star upon the highest bough. Uh, And they change the kind of tenses of some of the lines from uh, faithful friends. They change to like, who are dear to us, gather near to us once more, rather than who were dear to us, will be near to us once more. Because that song in the movie and in, the kind of the lyrics that I find most powerful is one of of accepting and dwelling in a sense of loss and longing for um, 
potentially better Christmases to come. And to me, I just think that that's such a, a needed version. We have so many happy Christmas songs. <laughs> like, surely we can have the space for ones, which is not saying that things are awful now it's saying have yourself a merry little christmas now make the most of what you have now enjoy the joys and blessings and gifts that you have now but also to feel that there are trials and tribulations and to hope that for another year that we may even leave some of those behind and enter into joy a a fuller joy again later and so that's one of that's that's like my little soapbox where I'm like no leave it as the as the lyrics don't you don't need to make it like all happy and cheerful that it is quite a a reflective song yeah that we're allowed to hold more than one emotion at a time yeah like we're allowed to feel the sorrow and grief yeah and actually it's only by acknowledging that that we're then able to enter into joy exactly that I think part of our sorrow at Christmas often comes when we try and pretend that it's like unmitigatingly happy. Yeah. Yeah. And so I have two quotes from other pieces that I want to read out because I just think that they're so fitting for this topic and for this time of year. The first is, of course, a T.S. Eliot poem, because, you know, I have Mm -hmm. to. It's called The Journey of the Magi, and it's about the experience of the Magi coming to to meet our Lord. And it begins with a cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey and such a long journey, the ways deep and the weather sharp the very dead of winter, and the camel's galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces and the silken girls bringing sherbet. But it ends with, All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again. But set down this, set down this. Were we led all that way? for birth or death. There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods, I should be glad of another death. Mm. And I think that's so interesting because the birth of Christ does call us to a death of ourselves. And it's even in the read of God, she, she talks about the demands of love. And she says that the vision of Christ we have in others, which is interesting because, as you said, Phoebe, she had a very literal vision of Christ in others. She says that vision will impose an obligation on us for as long as we live, the obligation of love. When we fail in it, we shall not be able to escape in excuses and distractions as we have done in the past. The failure will afflict us bitterly and always. Mm. I, I just think those two pieces are so helpful in like illuminating each other also that idea of our sins inflicting us bitterly mm-hmm. with our failures yes yeah yeah and then the second piece which i've i think i've referenced a couple of times on this podcast i know for certain i referenced it in the the that very early one on waiting in the dark and advent which is a uh, sermon that Hans Urs von Balthasar gave uh, I think it's in the collection you crown the year with your glory I think that's what it's called it's a sort of seasonal set of sermons but this is the Christmas one and I think the, the the piece that I have quoted before which I love which is about how when the angels came to the shepherds they must have felt very like awkward and ashamed and like kind of glad to have them gone because they were just these lowly shepherds <laughs> but it goes on to say the shepherds believe the word the word sends them from heaven and to earth and as they proceed along this path from light to darkness from the extraordinary to the ordinary, from the solitary experience of God to the realm of ordinary human intercourse, from the splendor above to the poverty below, they are given the confirmation they need, the sign fits. Only now does their fearful joy under heaven's radiance turn into a completely uninhibited human and Christian joy, because it fits. And why does it fit? 
because the Lord, the high God, has taken the same path as they have. He has left his glory behind him and gone into the dark world, into the child's apparent insignificance, into the unfreedom of human restrictions and bonds, into the poverty of the crib. This is the word in action. And yet, as the shepherds do not know, no one knows how far down into the darkness this word in action will lead. At all events, it will descend much deeper than anyone else into what is worldly, apparently insignificant and profane, into what is bound, poor and powerless, so much so that we shall not be able to follow the last stage of his path. A heavy stone will block the way, preventing the others from approaching, while in utter night, in ultimate loneliness and forsakenness, he descends to his dead human brothers. Ooh. That sentence at the end mm-hmm. descends to his dead human brothers. So good. It's amazing. Yeah. And that's so much of what Carol Hauslander is trying to get across, which is, yeah, that this move into the ordinary and into the brokenness that Christ leads the way and that Our Lady leads the way for us and that we are called to follow. Yeah, and there's also such a beautiful illustration there of the shepherd seeking Christ in faith. Mm-hmm. And having, yeah, the idea of having to go from the extraordinary sign of the angels to the ordinariness of the crib. Mm-hmm. And she talks about that beautifully with Our Lady, of Our Lady having to seek Christ in faith. Mm-hmm. From the hour when Gabriel saluted her, the little girl in Nazareth, she had had to seek him through faith, to believe that he was in her, to believe that this little child whom she rocked to sleep was God, that it was God whom she taught to walk, to speak, to hold a spoon. After the finding in the temple, he returned to Nazareth and was obedient to her. She had to believe that it was God who obeyed them, God who grew and who increased in wisdom. Later on, she was again seeking for Christ, this time among the crowds that thronged around him in his public life. She was among those who were trying to get close to him. Therefore, she is among the sick, the crippled, the blind, the poorest beggars, outcasts of every description. For such are the people who follow Christ in every age. It is just like Our Lady, this. She who did not seek an exalted or solitary life in which to prepare him for Christ's birth is now content to follow him in the crowd, to seek him among strangers in the public street. It's so wonderful. And that's actually another big part of the book, which is it's a, a section called Seeking that is also so relevant for us for Advent, that we have to go and look for Christ. And that even as you just referenced there, that Our Lady had to seek for him, that this is part of what Christ calls us to do. And that even he says, it is better for for you that I should go so that you can seek me. Yeah, and it ties back into that emptiness that we were talking about, Mm -hmm. that Christ having left means that we have to go and seek him, Mm -hmm. that we feel that emptiness and we seek Christ to fill it. Yeah. And that one of the key ways in which we do that is in seeking Christ in others. Yeah. And we were talking about her vision earlier. I'm just going to read out the quote from her autobiography about this. She says, For the third time I saw Christ in man. This time it was an unimaginably vaster experience than on either of the other occasions. It was not the seeing of Christ in one person. This time it was Christ in all men. This is much more difficult to describe than the other experiences. I can only do my best to tell you just as it happened. I was on an underground train, a crowded train in which all sorts of people jostled together, sitting and strap hanging, workers of every description going home at the end of the day. Quite suddenly, I saw in my mind, but as vividly as a wonderful picture, Christ in all of them. But I saw more than that. Not only was Christ in every one of them, living in them, dying in them, rejoicing in them, sorrowing in them, but because he was in them, and because they were here, the whole world was here too, here in this underground train. Mm. And there's something so beautiful about the idea of Christ rejoicing in us that we talked about earlier. Yeah. That we have to seek that in others as well, and in that welcoming of other people into that space. Yeah. And I love how she talks about that idea of a crowd. Mm. And that, like, I think she talks a little bit about how he's not 
satisfied with only just the person of Christ that he was on earth, mm. but has such an endless love to share with the world that it needs to be expressed over and over again in all the peoples of the earth. Yeah, it's that a expression of Christ mm. in the irrepeatability of each human person. Yeah, it's so great. And so that idea of like, yeah, the crowd of Christ. Yeah, and I think like we were in town yesterday and the crowds doing their Christmas shopping and it's very easy to kind of get annoyed with the crowd mm-hmm. and get caught up in like your isolation from the crowd and like disdain the crowd. Yeah. But Christmas is actually a time for being part of the crowd as yeah. well. And she draws that out really beautifully with Our Lady. She says, True to her consistent compassion for us, her entering into our experience, the few glimpses we have of Our Lady nearly all show her in the crowd, crowded out of the inns of Bethlehem when Christ was born, seeking him in the crowds on the road back to Jerusalem persuading him to his first miracle in a crowded marriage feast, seeking him in the crowd in his public life. Even in the immense lowliness on Calvary, she was surrounded by the crowd around the cross. Just that idea of of not separating yourself from humanity that she keeps coming back to about is so important to Our Lady, that she's not set aside because because she talks about how it feels like it can be hard to relate to our lady because she's the best of all humans so like what do i have in common with our lady and that actually that she is so close to us in our daily lives that she is so in the midst of us that she is never set apart from us that she's right there with us and that that's how our lord wanted her to be and again as we kind of just said that that's also how our lord wants to be experienced himself. Yeah, that she is bearing Christ to us, mm-hmm. that we might bear Christ and reflect Christ back to her and obviously to Christ. And to the world in and general. To the world, yeah. And yeah, there's another quote where she says, They will know his presence not by any special beauty or power shown by us, but in the way that the bud knows the presence of the light by the unfolding in themselves, a putting forth of their own beauty. It seems that this is Christ's favourite way of being recognised, that he prefers to be known, not by his own human features, but by the quickening of his own life in the heart, which is the response to his coming. When John recognised him, he was hidden in his mother's womb. After the resurrection, he was known, not by his familiar features, but by the love in Magdalene's heart, the fire in the hearts of the travellers to Emmaus, and the wound in his own heart handled by Thomas. Mm. Which I think it just brings us into why it is such a wonderful thing to celebrate the people in your life at this time, but to have that awareness of it being both you bearing Christ to other people and seeing Christ in those other people. Yeah, and that reverencing of Christ in other people. It's so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for quite a short book, I think it packs a powerful punch. I know, there's a few things we've just left out entirely. Yeah, we may come back to in another episode, but yeah, like incredibly, yeah, we have not even covered everything that's in the book. Uh, I would really recommend reading it. I feel like this episode in particular, maybe more than other episodes, has featured a lot of quotes but it's so hard when someone puts it so beautifully to say like no I know what to say you know I mean there's no point in us paraphrasing it when we can read her saying it way better <laughs> just a shout out to Ronan who gave us this book he and his fiance Chloe are big listeners of the podcast um so, so. yes thank you very much we're we're very pleased with the, our copy of it and yeah it really gave us the, the nudge to make sure we read it and yeah it's just it's a wonderful book I would really recommend it and I hope this episode has been interesting. In some ways, like I said, it, it, it always feels a little bit taboo to bring up like maybe senses of melancholy or hardship or parting at Christmas. But that that hope that we can bear Christ to others who are maybe struggling at this time, but also that to to know and take comfort in the fact that it is both a joy and a grief at the same time, that there are 
always multiple facets to any any of these big occasions in our lives. Yeah, that we can hold both of these things in tension mm-hmm. and by being charitable with ourselves as well as with others, mm-hmm. hopefully do so better and more generously. Yeah. And with that, I, uh, once again, I would really like to wish all of our listeners a very happy Christmas mm. and you know, just blessings. And I hope that it is a a time in which you can feel the presence of God and his love and dwell with that for a little time. It is a very special time of year. Uh, As much as, you know, there's a whole secular world buzzing around it, that there is still this core that allows us more breath and time and attention to give to even if it's just attending carol concerts which i think you're going to talk about in a second phoebe or you know just to bring these aspects of our faith into our more um, worldly lives as carol Sander would like us to do yeah and that hopefully you manage to find some good quiet time between christmas and new year Mm -hmm. in that lull to yeah take some time to reflect but also then to minister to others and to spend time with them and catch up with people without feeling like that's drawing you away from prayer. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah, that integration of both of them together. And uh, as usual, I know we've only just come off a, <laughs> a forced hiatus, but uh, in the spirit of actually getting some time to, to see friends and to relax and maybe prepare a couple of episodes of the podcast, uh, we will be off for January. We will be back in February. We are already planning episodes. I want to reassure any of our listeners. I, there was someone who reached out very kindly. and was like, I was worried that it, it, you, you'd stopped. I have not stopped. The podcast will return as normal in February. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to getting stuck into some topics then. I'm looking, I'm getting excited planning next year's episodes already. And uh, yeah, it's uh, such, as I mentioned already, it's such a pleasure to get to this podcast. So I'm, great. I'm looking forward to next year's episodes already. But to finish up our episode as we normally do, I have to ask you, Phoebe, what are you enjoying at the moment? Well, I mean, you already spoiled it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to some lovely carol concerts recently. Um, particularly one by the Bach singers that I go to quite a lot here in Dublin and another by my sister's old choir that was in St. Patrick's Cathedral with like all the lights turned off except for at the altar where the choir were which was just a really magical experience and it's such a beautiful time of year to really appreciate live music Mm -hmm. so I've been enjoying that. I am also going to say music. It's going to be a little less seasonal, but it will be actually quite relevant. Uh, I, to completely fess up, I don't listen to a lot of kind of Christian worship music. It's not really the genre that I gravitate towards naturally. Uh, But recently I've been exploring, thanks to some recommendations, some more... I, I don't want to say Christian music because in my mind that technically covers everything from Bach's Requiem <laughs> to, <laughs> to like, I guess, Oceans by, is it Carrie Job? Any of those, like, like Christian music is truly everything. But, uh, but let's say kind of explicitly Christian music and also, but also at the same time exploring the, the bounds of what that can mean and what can still fit in that category while also being maybe more ambiguous or uh, you know accessible for people outside of the faith. So there's a couple of ones that I've been listening to. There's Chris Renzema, really enjoy his his stuff. There's a couple of tracks from his new album, which I think is called Mana Part One. It came out in the last year, so I presume there's a Mana Part Two coming at some point, but uh, I think the tracks that I enjoyed from that were Holy Ghost and the track called Mana. Uh, I've been listening to Rich Mullins, who is very new to me, but I'm I'm enjoying it. I think the album I've listened to most is called A Liturgy, A Legacy and A Ragamuffin Band. And the tracks I was enjoying from that in particular were one called 5210 and the other called The Colour Green. And finally, I've also been listening to The Arcadian Wild. They have an album called Principium, which goes through the different seasons and I really enjoy that. I think they're kind of they're the one that are the least explicitly Christian, but yes, I have been enjoying all of those and so I would like to recommend those and to thank my friends who have very kindly recommended those to me in kind of the recent months. 
Um, and it feels very strange to say this, but uh, that's it for 2023. Whoa. <laughs> uh, and uh, we hope to have you back in a couple of weeks because believe it or not, February is actually only a couple of weeks away. What? <laughs> <laughs> and in the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at Risky Enchantment Podcast. If you want to get emails, especially of when we post new episodes, you can sign up to our newsletter, which is on my website, rachelsherlock.com. And I think I still post on Twitter or X or whatever it's called. I will do my best. I think I forgot once or twice recently, but you can you can follow me there. My handle is at Seeking Watson. And once again, wishing you a very happy Christmas. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.